0: Somebody is trying to contact you from the beyond through me. Oh, come on, Reverend Harry, and I used to do that in the act.
1: And badly, too. Come on, let's get a taxi. Are you a phony? You can tell me I used to be in the business.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Intermillennium Media Project podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I am Ian Porter. (laughs) Ian Porter the Great. (laughs) Um, I'm his dad, he's my son, and and I make him watch movies and, and TV. Just in case this is your first exposure to this podcast, what we do here is I introduce Ian to movies or TV or books or records that were important to me in my youth so that we find out what he thinks of them, coming to them usually fresh, what I think of coming back to them sometimes decades later, and talk about what makes them work, what what doesn't make them work. And I took you back to the 70s this week. Ah, yes. Back to a 70s TV movie. Not the first 70s TV movie... TV movie we've talked about. We talked about the the 70s TV version of Doctor Strange, for example.
1: We did. I must say 70s TV movies have a specific like style to them. And it doesn't <laughs> feel either it is a style that does not feel either generally 70s or TV movie. There is something distinctly 70s TV movie.
0: <laughs> it's very very distinctive. I agree. Yes. Well, this was a movie that, that made maybe a bigger impression on me than on anybody else in the world. That's quite possible. Because mm-hmm. this was The Great Houdini's. Or, ah, yes. or The Great Houdini. Because it was circulated or broadcast under different names at different times. At one point, it was The Great Houdini's, plural. At another point, it was just The Great Houdini.
1: I wonder who this might be about.
0: (laughs) It stars Paul Michael Glazer as Harry Houdini and Sally Struthers as his wife, Bess Houdini. Both really big names in the 70s on television. Yeah. Paul Michael Glazer, definitely, he's best known as being one half of Starsky and Hutch. Oh, you're kidding me. A quintessential 70s cop show that. I never watched a lot. I watched some of it because my brother was a huge fan of it. Your Uncle Paul loved Starsky and Hutch. And Sally Struthers was most known for being on All in the Family,
1: the sitcom. Okay. Oh, see, I kind of recognized Paul Michael, Gla- Michael Glazer, but not as a specific actor. <laughs> I recognized him as a, a TV that guy. Yep. Because he's this, like, person who shows up on, like, The Closer and Criminal Minds and Numbers and The Mentalist for an episode apiece. (laughs) And that's just like, oh, it's that guy. For me, and I was just, I recognize him. I don't know where from, it turns out. Everywhere. (laughs) But he was recognizable, at least to
0: me. Yeah, he is very distinctive. It's a distinctive look, but it's a very 70s look that most of the
1: pictures you'll see of him. He is a man who can pull off the <laughs> the the careful balance that is friendly smug. Other members of the
0: cast include Ruth Gordon as Cecilia Weiss, uh, Houdini Eric Weiss's mom. Uh, Vivian Vance as Minnie the nurse, who oh, is shoot. that's a character we're going to have to talk about quite a bit.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Adrian Barbeau as Daisy White, another Woman of interest in Houdini's life, but the reason mm. I'm going through the cast is I also have to mention, as Reverend mm. Arthur Ford, uh uh-huh. it's Bill Bixby. The Bixby boy is back! Woo! <laughs> Bill is back Bill with Bixby. us. Yep. Uh. We're going to talk about 70s TV. We're, we're often going to get a, another sighting of Bill Bixby.
1: <laughs> oh, Bill Bixby showing up everywhere when you. Sometimes when you do, and sometimes when you do not expect him.
0: And doing a lot with a small role in this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I don't think there is ever a role he has not given his all on. He's just a good actor, and he's got range, yeah. so he can do drama, he can do comedy. I just Again, we could turn this into a Bill Bixby fan cast very easily. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you look we'll at the right playlist, and we have, so.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His 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 portrayal of things is something that even modern Marvel is referencing. If you've watched uh, any of uh, She-Hulk, they make a lot of reference to to Bill Bixby's version. So, like he everything he plays, he seems to have an impression. Nice.
0: Well, this is a movie that it it had an impression on me partly because it came at me at the right time because I had been a fan of of magic. For, for quite a while, when this came out in 1976, I, and I was like 10 years old, 9 years old, and since like 5, I had been a fan of magic, but a fan of magic in the liking to get books about magic, or magic kits, and learning how to do magic tricks, and, and thinking I knew how to do them after I practiced them 2 or 3 times, and... and uh-huh. Wondering what happened when they failed miserably. And I was kind of getting over that by the time this movie came out. Not entirely yet. And this movie, watching this, sort of sparked an interest in magicians as a kind of artist. Something I had never really paid attention to before. The only magicians I knew were like the, peak, the guy on the, the commercials for the TV Magic Limited company where I got so many of these magic sets. And this made me, got me interested in Houdini, which got me interested in who came before Houdini and what was it like to be a performing magician uh, at these various points in history. And this this uh-huh. got me interested in a whole line of reading that I devoured for months, uh, the way some of these movies did.
1: Hmm. It, it, I, I'm, I'm kind of not surprised, <laughs> but I'm also fascinated to see, like, This movie, I understand that it's a movie about Harry Houdini, but it feels less about being a magician than I expected in some ways. So, I'm fascinated by the fact that this is something you consider connected to that, because it almost feels disconnected to me.
0: (laughs) That is true. It didn't really tell you much about Harry Houdini as a magician. It skimmed over a lot of that, and... Uh, to the extent that it did, I don't think it told you very much uh, that was necessarily accurate. It really wasn't about the magic. It was you know, the life and loves of Harry Houdini. It was more yeah. soap opera.
1: This is, this is another one of these interesting instances where it's not about a band. But it very much fits the band biopic formatting. <laughs> yes. And there's a difference between band <laughs> biopic and standard biopic. And this is distinctly weirdly band like, what with the touring show and the the rise and fall action and the <laughs> the the through line centered on a specific act and things like that.
0: Yeah, it's much more of a Harry Houdini behind the magic than yeah. a real biopic. But I, it's one of these, I don't think I've seen it since the late 70s. And yet, I remember it so much as having an impact that I wanted you to at least see it. And I wanted the excuse to watch it again to see, was this what mm-hmm. I remember it being? And I think the answer is pretty much. Okay. It's, it's brief, though. I yeah. seem to remember this as being this long saga that, like, occupied an entire day to watch. And no, it's like a
1: a, 90-minute TV movie. It's a 90-minute TV movie. I will admit, it has some pacing that (laughs) I can understand would, in the mind, stretch like taffy into a longer thing. Because they pack so much plot
0: into those 90 minutes and so much happens that you assume it must be taking longer?
1: Let's go with that. (laughs) There's some hard repetition yeah. that feels that feels like it's stretching for time at, <laughs> at, at times in this, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it is frustrating to some extent, because it's, it's mostly the story of Harry and Bess Houdini, which is why one of the titles was The Great Houdini's, plural.
1: Yeah, it, it's interesting, because it it's a movie that starts out uh, at the end, he's already dead. Yes, it's bookended
0: by a scene at his grave. We're almost bookended
1: there, yeah. Almost bookended. Like bookended
0: there, but with an epilogue.
1: He's not around to give a, yep, that's me. You're <laughs> probably wondering how I wound up in this situation monologue. <laughs> Although the fact that he could or could not give that monologue is, I guess, part of the narrative?
0: Yes, that's one of the reasons why they're there. <gasps> on the, his day, the anniversary of his death, or the, the eve of the anniversary of his death, uh, he died on Halloween, was because he, he, he said that if anybody is going to be able to come back and bring a message from the other side, I will do it. And if you don't hear from me, that means it's impossible. That's essentially kind of the message that he left before he died. And it seemed like Bess was half expecting to get that message at some point. Yeah. But then they jump right into the beginning of their marriage and essentially the beginning of his career
1: yeah and and they do an interesting job with something that that early bit feels very stage performancy, and I mean that just in terms of the way they shoot a small house and this introduction of these two as a couple and everything else, it's very stage play like as it yeah. sets up who these characters are. They each get their little moment, their little discussion where their little moment where they can talk and you can hear how they are and kind of they forget to present the character of who they are to the audience and we get that both in mini kind of acting as a audience surrogate narrator for the things in the future and you get paul michael glazer's gang to portray houdini and give you a clear idea of who Houdini is in, at least in this depiction of him. Sally Stroz gets that very nice long discussion, kind of presenting herself to Houdini's mother so that we understand Bess at the time. Everyone gets kind of their opening presentation moment.
0: Yeah, they, it really would, this screenplay would work as a stage play in many ways, in that you've mm. got these very contained scenes, you've got some transitions that could even happen you know, downstage in front of the curtain while they change the set behind you. It's very segmented in that way. And yeah, at the very beginning, they, they not only set up the characters, but they also set up these relationships. And they make it very clear that at the beginning this is a story, essentially it's a, a, a triangle of affection story where the three people are Houdini, Houdini's wife, Bess, and Houdini's mother who dotes on him and is demanding of him and demands a lot of affection and for on whom he also dotes and showers a lot of affection and is very, very close. And there's this like lifelong competition between who is prominent in his life, his wife or his mother. And that's not inconsistent with other things I've read in Houdini biographies, but they they have, of course, emphasized it for the soap opera angle when it comes to a movie like this.
1: Yeah, that's where I said that there's bits where they really over-repeat and overhype. They are super soap-operating this. With these, these kind of clash moment, clashing moments between Bess Houdini and Houdini's mother. There's this this constant back and forth. There's these stories of their career coming and going, and it's all punctuated by these these moments where they will come in conflict once again. In some ways, this version of Harry Houdini is a is a character. He is also a constant MacGuffin,
0: <laughs> and yet we do see a bit about the early parts of Houdini's career, and that might have been part of what really um, really got my attention. And because we see him initially, he's he marries Bess after knowing her for about ten days. And yeah. they are going to build a new act for Houdini, who's been kind of an entertainer and a vaudeville guy, but they're building a mentalist act. The classic kind of mentalist act where they've got a word code where the way that she asks the question is indicating to him what the answer should be, which is just a lot of memorization. But they... they. They talk about that, and they practice that, but we don't really see them on stage until they're doing some other tricks, like the classic you know, metamorphosis trick. Somebody's locked up and tied up inside the, the trunk, somebody else stands up on top of it, curtains close, curtains open, and they've switched places. So they start doing other kinds of magic pretty quickly, it seems. Not always well, apparently. But there it is.
1: I do appreciate that this is a, a story about Harry Houdini that shows tricks not always going right. Yes, he's not
0: he's not a, a a miracle worker from the get-go. He's not somebody with some supernatural powers, which some people in his time thought he must be, given some of the things he accomplished later in his career.
1: And as a lot of historical figures will have, there is something of a a superheroification over time of the stunts performed. But it it's actually sometimes more impressive when you don't over exaggerate the coolness of what was being done at the time.
0: Now, in fact there's a book that I haven't read yet, but I want to. It's The Secret Life of Houdini, the making Ooh. of America's first superhero. Ah. Uh, you're so you're yeah. you're right on track there in terms of he was at least his stage persona was of a person with superhuman powers. And it's interesting that this, this is a biopic that doesn't choose to lean into that. Instead, it talks about this is a very human person with some, some serious issues that he's dealing with, and yet he still built this career and this stage persona. Because eventually, after quite some time, we get to the cool magic stuff. We get the classic diving into the, the, the bay with the handcuffs on, although they show that, again, as something that's going wrong. Also, we see some of how he becomes
1: famous and successful, and that involves going to Europe. The European stuff is excellent, because that feels like one of those major scene changes and style changes. Just the, just the entire moment of him... Making his way out of the uh, the Scotland Yard jail cell. Yes, and that's that I mean, entire scene. That is simultane, that is an excellently done. That is an extremely 70s TV movie kind of shot moment. It's another one of these, like, "I know when this is from. You don't have to tell me. I can guess. There's <laughs> right. just something about the way this is being shot and all the zoom- ins and zoom outs and everything else. I'm like, "Oh, I get it." but it's really fun and it does a good job of keeping you engaged that on its own feels like a little a little short form play completely separate from the larger story it's in
0: that's one of my my favorite sequences because that is a a well-documented incident in early in houdini's career and yet i don't think that the way it came about and everything else was anything like is shown in this movie where he essentially is harassing a, uh, a theater promoter and the theater promoter has him taken off to jail and essentially Houdini challenges the people at Scotland Yard to keep him in jail because you're not going to be able to. And him getting out is, it's one of the, the more superheroic kind of things that we see Houdini do. And yeah, yet it's also one in which they show us in detail how he's able to do it.
1: Yes, there is something. This is instead of instead of putting us in the audience, surprised and amazed and bewildered at how they show the meticulous skill it took to do so. Right. It is. It is shown with a love of the the craft of being the performer instead of purely a love for the performance. And that's, that's part of what makes that an excellent moment, because it puts you in the mind of Houdini in that moment. It puts you in his situation, and you connect better with the character because of that.
0: Right, it's the first moment we get where, where we see that it's not just something he's good at, it's not just something he is, he wants to do and he's trying to do and is not very good at it's something that he has clearly trained at more than anybody else which is really the secret of any magic you just you've practiced this more than anybody thinks you might have and we see him you know we've got we we've already seen the trick where best passes him a handcuff key with a kiss but then we also see him regurgitate some lock picks that he half swallowed but then he's got to reach out of the jail cell with his feet in order to reach the lock and pick the lock with his toes and it's yeah I don't know if that's how he did this, but it's a great scene because it's it's amazing. And yet it still has a little edge of believability.
1: Exactly.
0: It's it, there's there's
1: something about setting it up like that.
0: And the fact that they end it with um uh, with him having unlocked the cells of all the other prisoners who were there and saying, do you have a drink for my friends here when he shows up at the the warden's office? Yeah. That is uh is just part of the why it's
1: so it fun. also has another very good instance of um surprisingly well positioned <laughs> desk objects. Oh yes because in order to make sure he had nothing on his person, he was locked in the jail cell naked. Yes. And so they do a lot of fun always positioning things so that you can't ever see anything. (laughs) And so when the the shots slide sideways to see him coming through the door, there's things right at the right level on the desk just to cover up. It's like, oh, hey, nice camera work.
0: (laughs) And that acknowledges two things. On the one hand, you're making a TV movie in 1976. You know, you're... Not going to go too far wrong with a couple of scenes of a a, a naked or partially naked uh, Paul Michael Glazer.: Yeah, but also you look at some of the the publicity photos from Houdini's career, where he's essentially naked and bound in chains, and, and there there's defi- was definitely something erotic about the way Houdini promoted his act and promoted his skills. There's no denying that, and they they at least acknowledge that in scenes like this in the movie.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. if you if you look at the poster for this movie, it is actually Paul McGreeveyer recreating a shot of Harry Houdini, where he is you know, bound in chains and shackles, naked. Right, <laughs> like the the chains and covering. But and this is staring at the camera. That is that is pulled straight from Houdini's promotional artwork. So they are they're v- being very true to the way Houdini presented himself. Yeah. Now that means that you've got to go into this thinking you do with what you would with any biopic, which is is this a presentation of the real person or a presentation of the presentation of the real person? And I think this is much more the second. Mm -hmm. But that is effective here.
0: Right, right. And it's. uh, I think there are other aspects of Houdini's career that are sometimes glossed over and and this movie doesn't really get into. Because in addition to the erotic elements, there were definitely political elements to Houdini's career. You know, a Hungarian Jew expatriate declaring that he defies, I defy the jails of the world to hold me. That's a political statement in the early 20th century
1: that is very much so
0: and they also in paul michael glazer's performance here they depict him as more of just a a new york jewish man as opposed to he does somebody with a thick hungarian accent and the like uh and i think that makes sense for a tv movie you don't need you want him to be, you want paul michael glazer to be able to play this part and not spend the whole thing making sure the accent is right but but it does change how he appears. He, de- he appears so very American in this movie. And I think the fact that he was... He was very American, but he was also very American immigrant, which I think is a different experience. It was a big part of who Houdini was.
1: Yeah. There is a lot of... like a, a, Another line of the story here is this dis- discussion between being always kind of the man on the outside he is he's he's got a issues back home in america he's got issues in europe he's never home anywhere completely Hmm. they make his they make his home the touring on the road and that make and that means that he's Every time we see him start to slow down or stop somewhere, it's when something bad happens.
0: Right, we see him his 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 the places where he lives get fancier and fancier as he gains fame and fortune in Europe and sends for his mother to to bring her over to Europe to to see them and to to be to to be presented as the what what did he say he would make her the queen of Budapest and essentially yeah. kind of does. But yeah, he's, he's very rootless again once he gets on the road and starts working the theater circuits. Like you were saying before, every single one of these little segments of his life that we see, it always culminates in, in some kind of conflict between Bess and Houdini's mother. Yeah, it always does. Until not long after the visit to Budapest. Uh, Houdini's mother passes away.
1: Yes. And this is where it takes its other turn, because this is where it gets a lot into Houdini versus the spiritualist movement. Right.
0: And and, and it also, it's showing you Houdini kind of collapsing emotionally mm-hmm. with his mother having passed away. And I, I have to say, it reminded me a bit of... The, uh, the Robert E. Howard biopic we watched a few weeks ago for Patreon. Um, the Whole Wide World, another you know, artist who has this such a close relationship with his mother that the end of her life puts his in jeopardy. Yes! Because yeah, he just co- goes to pieces. I think he sells the magic act to his brother. And then eventually, you're right, he turns to the spiritualist movement, the spiritualist church, which was gaining such traction in, in The UK and in America at the time to try to see if there is some way to communicate with the
1: other side. It feels like a very different movie at this point, in some ways, because we're having such a a large shift and large change. They they start to to show the world moving on without him and
0: and and even Bess you know leaves. Uh, I don't think they were ever divorced, but she leaves him mm -hmm. for a while because he just won't break out of this and he won't live his life after his mother passes away mm-hmm. and, and he begins to you know, keep company with someone else in the entertainment business. The woman played by Adrian Barbeau, everything he had built starts to fall apart and they make that so clear. And yet yes. when he starts looking at the spiritualists and, and starts to explore that. He does so still with a certain amount of circumspection in that he, he meets them and he essentially tells them, I'm a stage magician. He've got tricks. I'm going to be able to tell them. Exactly.
1: He is aware of what it takes to surprise and amaze an audience and he kind of realizes all he's doing is paying for shows in that <laughs> right. sense. And it becomes this this fight against them. And it's interesting to see them setting up things like having uh Sir Arthur Conan Doyle being his friend before and then becoming this antagonist figure to him as a person who's on this other side of the debate now.
0: Yeah, and that's always interesting. You see a number of things that connect Houdini and, and Doyle. There was, there was that TV show a few years ago. It didn't. Well, it was like a, a few episodes of a summer TV show. It might have been a Canadian production of Houdini and Doyle. That was like the two of them exploring potentially supernatural mysteries. It was a goofy show, but I liked it. Yes! And the two of them had met... And definitely, you know, Conan Doyle was very much a proponent of the spiritualist movement. Houdini ended up an opponent of it. I don't know that they had the kind of relationship that we see in this movie where Doyle was present during that test of Houdini at Scotland Yard. And then they met later and Doyle sponsors a, uh, uh, a seance to connect, to allow houdini to connect with his mother but it worked for the movie bringing in this another large figure from the time to have this kind of impact on the life of a houdini it it made sense Mm -hmm.
1: narratively it makes a lot of sense narratively
0: and that's where we start to see some details of how the whole spiritualism falls apart for houdini and how he's poking holes in it not just that he can tell the tricks of ringing bells with your toes and having hidden fishing line and whatnot, but also things like, you know, someone is supposedly writing a note to him from his mother who is beyond. And she's ca- she's writing in, in English for one thing, not Hungarian. She's mm-hmm. calling him Harry when that was his stage name. She would always call him Eric. All of these things that, well, today at least wouldn't be hard to research and get right. Uh, But these spiritualists were getting absolutely wrong. They were writing very generic, this is what a mother would say to her son if she could talk to him after she'd passed away. But they were getting all the details that would make it real wrong.
1: We see all the little things about his life that had led up in the first half of the movie become tools and truths and... And facts about him that he uses again in the second half to debunk things. We've seen this situation between them. We've seen him ask her to call him, him Harry and her refusing and her w- way of speaking to him, which means that that has more impact later. It makes the entire thing kind of uh, an A side and B side story where it's like all these setups in A get paid off in B. And it's all in this book-ended framework.
0: And this, of course, leads to things like Houdini testifying in a congressional hearing about spiritualism and the fact that it's a fraud and the fact that they're taking money from people under false pretenses and demonstrating for the hearing how all the tricks are done. How much of that is how that hearing went? I don't know. But again, it makes for a great TV movie where Houdini it makes for- is essentially staging a seance in a congressional hearing room, but doing so in broad daylight. So you can see all the tricks. But then that also means that he's surrounded by people who are, are castigating him for demonizing their religion of spiritualism.
1: And uh, definitely like at that point I could feel all of the moments where it's like, Oh, this is, this is being written with a snappiness that I don't think would have existed. No, but for a, but for that biopic kind of, extra flair and that nice summary of things. This has got some shots it fires. <laughs> yeah. This has got some heaters of lines, my goodness. <laughs> especially, especially from any single time. Minnie, the nurse opens her <laughs> mouth. She they give Vivian Vance the strongest lines in this entire movie every time. She is the she
0: only like enters their lives after Houdini's mother passes away and he's had his breakdown and she's one of the nurses attending to him and yet yeah. she in the, in the opening bookend and in so much of the movie she's essentially the voiceover narration explaining what's happening when and she's perfect in that because she's got the, the character has such a wit such sarcasm without being mean spirited something that's hard to pull off But I also think it's something about Vivian Vance who's able to pull that off so well. Come in. Don't catch cold. Come in. It's miserable out. It's miserable in, too. We're out of gin. I'm a disappointed atheist. I don't believe in sin, and I'm not getting any.
1: She's got, that, she's got this friendly, Ah, oh, you know what it's like to put up with these kind of artistic types, don't you? Come along with me. I got a story for you. Kind of like, just immediately, you're my friend. I can talk to you like this. Look at these guys. Kind of styling. I yes. love it.
0: And if you could believe what happens next, here you go. <laughs> exactly. And eventually, when he has, and I think it's before the hearing, in fact, when Houdini has stopped Believing any of these spiritualists, he started to get himself on back on track, he goes back into a show business, and he and Bess get back together and He has kind of a second wave in in his career, but eventually something that was his his death comes about because of something that was telegraphed earlier in the uh in the movie
1: yeah, which
0: is that in addition to all the skills that he had trained in he was in amazing physical condition and had some amazing physical capabilities. And some of them are, are made more of in other Houdini biographies, and they're just mentioned briefly in this. For example, the fact that he was able to like dislocate his shoulders to get out of straitjackets,
1: mm-hmm. things
0: like that. We see a little bit of that when he's getting out of handcuffs at one point. Oh, yeah. But, but there's also the fact that he was just in an extremely... Good physical condition and mm-hmm. you know if he tightened his his abdominal muscles he could take a punch in the stomach from the strongest person you could find and it wouldn't faze him
1: but they, they take a shortened version of the situation where someone you know kind of challenged him to that and didn't let him take the time to be ready and actually did damage, and it caused internal bleeding that killed him.
0: Yeah, it burst his appendix, so he died several days later due to that, the infection. Yeah. So, man, that's um, it's like somebody from a, from a newspaper brought along some boxer to see if this challenge is still out. And when Houdini said, oh, yeah, sure, the challenge is still there, bam, there's the punch. Yeah. Again, whether that's exactly how it worked, I don't know. But that's actually fairly close to some of the things I read. Yeah. And it was so during a... It was after that he was doing the upside-down water escape. Mm-hmm. Houdini, you know, couldn't do it. They had to, had to rescue him from the trick, but it was several days later that he died on Halloween. On Halloween. People made a, made a lot about Halloween. Uh, Houdini had to wait until Halloween before he would pass away.
1: Oh, yes. From there, we return to the, the book ending... As we've seen that his wife, Bess, is following through with the idea that uh, each Halloween, there'll be an attempted seance to prove whether or not the he's there on the other side. And all these little threads come back together.
0: And this is the point at which the Reverend Ford, Bill Bixby's character, really comes in. Mm-hmm. Saying that he has a message from from beyond. And at first, Bess doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with this. And then she agrees to have a séance, or spiritualist, a communication with people with from uh, in, uh, from public positions who are trustworthy. All in attendance, and and yeah, they go ahead and do this. And this is what this the story that this movie is conveying is one that Bess Houdini was involved in promulgating during her life. Mhm. Some have said that some of what she said proves certain things others were saying or say that she kind of backed away from that later. So they're very definite about what they present in this TV movie and I'm kind of making a point of not not uh, uh saying too much detail about it but they're much more definite in this TV movie than I think the historical record is.
1: Yeah. They were extremely definite and it kind of gives this weird feeling like one of the sides of the debate that they've been staging for the second half of this entire movie paid for this movie.
0: Yeah, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. So I, I never found the end of this movie. You know, I guess I, when I was 10 or 11 years old, I thought it probably seemed cool. I'm not sure that I like the end of this movie as much, but I don't know. I still, in, I enjoyed this movie on a second viewing so many years later, more than I expected to. I saw more yeah. of its limitations. It wasn't this amazing thing about an amazing person, but it's still, it was still a fun movie to watch and still was pretty cool. How, yeah. how did you feel about it?
1: So, we're leading into our final questions of a screen or no screen? I guess so, yeah. Okay. This was fun, but I admit it didn't really catch me in the same way. I appreciated getting to watch it. I enjoyed parts of it. But it was just... It was a little slow at points. It was a little awkward at other points. And... I, it got me interested in looking into more of his, of Houdini's life, but I don't feel like it itself was a story of his life that I want to take on its own alone. It's like, this might be part of a larger review, but it's not the be-all and all, all dis- depiction, in my opinion, now. And so I'm not really in a screen-it mode. It's a... It's a... It's a... It's a not screen for me, but I don't know if that means there's a better one out there, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I even though I said that I enjoyed coming back to it, I would say no screen to this as well. Unless, like me, you had some kind of fond memory of it that you want to revisit, then in that case, sure. But otherwise, there are better movies to spend your time with, and I'm sure there are better Houdini biopics to spend your time with. There's a 1950s Houdini biopic, which again is not any more oh, yeah. historically accurate than any biopic, but is a better movie. I haven't yet seen the Adrian Brody bio- biography that was made for the History Channel. I, there's, I, that's good, but I haven't seen it yet.
1: There's always going to be more Houdini things. There's that uh, 1953 played by Tony Curtis. There is a 1966 musical about Houdini's life called Man of Magic. There's this movie in 76. Uh, there's multiple radio dramas about him. There was a TV movie in 1998. There's the 2014 miniseries. Uh, there's the 2007 movie called Death Defying Acts. There's all sorts of things. There's always new stories and new depictions of Houdini. He's In some ways, he's made enough of a brand... He made enough of a brand that it will not end. Yes. It will keep on being told once more, which is awesome. And that's not including the fact that there are, if we're talking about, you know, film and TV depictions of Harry Houdini, there's the entire series of films starring (laughs) Harry Houdini. Yes. He did work in film in the, in the like 1919 it's like oh wait and plenty of those are just like available via wikimedia now because they are well into the public domain so
0: yeah i'd say you'd be better off spending your time with those or even finding that tv show uh, houdini and doyle yeah Yeah, because it's fun to watch you can go into it knowing there's nothing about this that is real they've just taken these characters out of history and turned them into what they need for a tv show and it's and it's enjoyable so, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. recommend this TV movie to anybody, really, now that I've subjected you to it.
1: <laughs> exactly. Oh. I, I, pre- I appreciate being subjected to it, though, Dad. I <laughs> enjoyed it.
0: Speaking of other things that Houdini was involved in, something that's a tie back to some previous podcasts, is Houdini's collaboration with H.P. Lovecraft. Ah, uh, yes. You aware of that one? Uh, I knew that
1: they did, but I didn't know what.
0: It's a story that was at various points it was called um, Under the Pyramids uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs or Entombed with the Pharaohs and it was a collaboration with Houdini. It was essentially ghostwritten by Lovecraft, but it was, the, the narrator was Harry Houdini and it was from 1924. It was 24. Yeah. And it was that, you know, Houdini was being tested by people who insisted that he be chained up and left overnight in the pyramid in Giza and Houdini in getting out experiences these strange supernatural phenomena. Okay. Oh, so, this is a great way to kind of promote the whole supernatural superhero aura that Houdini was developing. So, Sounds like it's a no-screen from both of us, so... Yeah. I don't know how we would take this, but there, there is also the Revive, Reboot, or Rest in Peace. Uh, I don't know what a revival would be like, unless it was Young Houdini, made yeah. in the style of a 70s uh, TV movie. <laughs> uh? Now I'm picturing it from the producers of Young Sheldon. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, I don't think that's going to work.
1: I don't think that's going to work. But honestly, like, I think that the answer is there's always going to be more Houdini biopics. Yeah. As we were saying, there's always going to be more stories of his tale. I, I also definitely think that like, it's interesting to say this. There's a lot of historical figures who are becoming popular to call back and use in your own stories now there are people who love using Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla and these sort of people as characters and put them in wild situations. I think Harry Houdini is not a very well tapped. Well for that. Yeah. He is this right kind of person with enough of a historical shadow Mm -hmm. that if you're looking for someone to throw an odd story at, just like that, you know, Houdini and Doyle series you're referencing, you can have some fun with him being the guy who's, who's who we know from history. Interacts with your main characters in whatever's going on i'm like side note tap that well there's a lot of fun to be had he's an interesting enough guy historically that he's an interest he becomes an interesting shorthand and reference to pull into the greater world
0: yeah there is a lot of interesting things you could do with that especially if you rely mostly on his his real physical skills oh yeah don't try to go into the supernatural stuff that people made up about him that could be, that, I mean, there's a lot you could do with that character. I'm sure there are books out there that have done so. Uh, but as you say, there's that's a pretty deep well you could tap.
1: I want to see the story that has like Harry Houdini is the, is the only man in, the, in, in Europe right now during his tour who could break into a place and steal the secret document. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's pretty good. Like, oh,
0: yeah, like, give me that.
1: <laughs> who knows? Yep.
0: Uh, I want to see a story involving Lovecraft and Houdini, but it would have to be a, um, it would have to be a Scooby-Doo kind of story where in the end it turned out the apparently supernatural stuff had a rational explanation. Now let's see who's
1: under this rubber mask. (laughs) Sir Arthur Conan Doyle! (laughs) rubber houdini (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's a strange <laughs> providence accent for uh, Lovecraft <laughs> yeah. Oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I guess you know we're we're happy to see reboots in the form of other Houdini biopics but this one can can stay as it is yeah well so it was fun to revisit but yeah. I'm going to think of something else to show you uh, for a couple of weeks from now when we'll be back with another IMMP podcast
1: I, I'm always happy to be dunked back into the milk tank of uh, 70s TV movies every once in a while. So <sighs> That's great. Ah, uh, yeah. In the meantime, uh, where can they find you
0: online, Dad? Uh, go to bymatthewporter.lol.omg and you'll find links to my website and my Mastodon and YouTube and anything else I'm doing. Uh, Ian, where can people find you?
1: I can be found at itemcrafting.com as itemcrafting. Live on Twitch and item crafting on YouTube. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com.
0: And you'll find there links to all of our previous episodes, a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and t shirts and things, a link to our Discord if you'd like to chat with us there, a link to our Patreon where you can support the show and also get bonus audio content. But mostly, just thank you very much for downloading this episode. Thank you very much for watching. Tell your friends if you enjoyed it. And we hope you'll uh, be back with us in a couple of weeks for more tales of media from the 20th century. in the meantime, that sign may to get rid of these cuffs, <laughs> go find something new to watch.